0: This is an ABC podcast. Heather Rose points out that, according to modern physics, all that we see and know of in our universe, that's everything from mosquitoes to distant planets, from the monuments of human history to your kitchen sink, all that accounts for about 5% of what's actually there. The other 95%, well, that's what scientists call dark energy and dark matter, And we don't really know what it is, but it's there, all around us and all through us, this vast mystery that our everyday daylight minds can't really grapple with. Heather has had an intuitive sense of this ever since she was a little girl, growing up in the ancient forests and wild beaches of Tasmania but her intimacy with the mystery at the heart of things intensified when a terrible tragedy befell her family when Heather was 12 years old. she spent much of her life since then looking for a way to commune with what lies beyond. That quest has taken her from Buddhist monasteries to Native American dance rituals, to the discipline of writing. Heather's novels include the stellar award-winning The Museum of Modern Love, inspired by the performance artist Marina Abramovich and the best-selling thriller Bruni. Her new book is a memoir. It's called Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here. Hi, Heather. Hello, Sarah. Tell me about that little girl in Tasmania. How did she spend her days?
1: We lived about an hour out of Hobart. We lived on a beach I grew up with sunrises and birds wheeling across the sky and the ever-flowing artwork of clouds that filled the horizon from the west to the east. Our shack was on the Tasman Peninsula, so it was a very remote place in those days. There were never any footprints on the beaches and one of my enduring memories is sitting on the shore with a hammer and chisel from my grandfather's workshed. shed. Uh, opening the oysters at low tide and just lifting them up and popping them in my mouth. It was a privileged childhood because it was so free. What kind of presence was your mum when you were a little girl? Mm, She was such a bright, bubbly presence. She was full of rhyming poetry and a love of fun and theatre. We listened to the radio endlessly. We didn't have a television. And mum's love of cooking and creating filled our lives Was it a kind of opposites attract between her and your dad? I think so because he was much more formal, much more reserved. She was the life of the party. He was the wise, kind thinker who would put a book in my hand and say, here you are, read this. He is a devout Christian. Mum believed in heaven on earth. Here we are. Let's make the most of it. You've used this this term shack, which is quite a distinctive, wonderfully
0: Tasmanian notion. Tell me more about the shack that your grandad Burgess built you. What did it look like?
1: Uh, so the shack uh, that granddad built was timber. It was painted white. It had many different levels because I think he slowly added on. So there were steps down into the bedroom he and Nan had. There was a couple of steps up into the bathroom. The floors were lino and very uneven it had a, fire, a big old stone fireplace where we had fires all the time and there was a clock on the mantelpiece above the fireplace that was always set at 10 to 11 because he said that way it was always time for a little something.
0: <laughs> That's very Winnie the Pooh of him. <laughs> you've, you've talked about getting the, the oysters off the, the beach as a little girl. What about fishing with your granddad? What memories do you have of that?
1: I feel as if I spent my childhood with a fishing line in my hand. I know that isn't true, but it was so powerful. His love of doing that imbued me with such a sense of wonder for nature. We'd go out at dawn, this little dinghy. He'd row out. He taught us all to row in that boat. He'd row out. We'd sit out in the middle of uh, what was called the Narrows, which was offshore from our shack, The water was glassy calm, the sunrise was mirroring the water, there were early birds, the clouds, the little breeze that would come in not long after sunrise and he would say look Heather that's what beauty is and I think it's such a gift to share that with children to point beauty out to them because it's something that will be with them all their lives, the ability to see beauty in all its forms. What kind of relationship did your granddad have with your oldest brother, with Byron? Yeah, they were peas in a pod. They loved hanging out together. They were both drawn to nature and drawn to being out there hunting and fishing. Granddad was gregarious. Byron was quite a quiet person, but he had such a beautiful... Sense of humor and a very one of those people who smiles with their eyes. He had a slow, lovely way of being in the world that was gentle and kind. And I loved having him as my brother because he was always happy to show me something. He was always happy to show me how to get a periwinkle out of a shell or uh, how to stretch something to make it work if you were trying to fix something. He had lots and lots of skills in that regard. He was quite clever with electronics too, so he built radios and you know, he'd listened to people around the world from these radios. I think he built his first radio by the time he was ten. Tell me what
0: happened one morning when when your brother Byron at fifteen was fishing with your granddad. They took the dinghy out to Lime Bay.
1: Mm. It was the September holidays and Grandad and Nan and Byron had headed out a few days early to go to the shack. We were going to join them. On this particular morning, it was a beautiful morning and they went to Lime Bay where the water is lime coloured. It is white sand and the most beautiful coloured water. They set a net and a couple of hours later the wind came up. It started squalling and... Byron and Grandad went out to pull the net into the boat and we don't know what happened but uh, Nan watched this from the shore. The boat overturned. They are in the water. It's very, very cold in the water at that time of the year and they They drowned.
0: When you answered the door to a policeman back home, Heather, you were somehow not surprised by this awful news. Why not?
1: Mm-hmm. I've always had a great respect for police since this incident. This man turned up at the door and he said, Do you know, Landed Keith Burgess and Byron Kent Rose? And I said, Yes, one of them is my grandfather and one of them is my brother. And he looked so shattered because I think it was only then he realised how young I was. And I asked him in and he said, no, he'd wait in the car. And my sister was standing behind me and she was nine years old. And she said, what did he want? And I said, Byron and Grandad are dead. And she asked me how I knew and I said, I just knew, but the reason I knew was because I'd had this terrible dream that morning, a dream that had woken me up gasping because I thought that I was drowning, but I wasn't me I was my brother. You saw Byron again then, (laughs) after he
0: passed away.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, just after the funeral I was sent off to Girl Guide Camp and when I came home from that, uh, the house was empty and it was full of decaying flowers from the funeral and from the gifts people had sent us and there was such a strange silence in the house and I went up to my bedroom and I laid on the bed and I just cried. I, I was utterly bereft and I heard something. I turned around and... My brother was standing in the doorway and he, he was a bit transparent but it was really him and he was smiling, that blue-eyed smile that he had and he was just in every way being completely reassuring to me and he didn't say anything but what he emanated was, I'm all right, you don't need to worry about me, it's going to be okay.
0: He gave you that reassurance that sounds like it was really meaningful to you as that young girl, that younger sister. But what did that terrible loss of of your eldest sibling and of of your granddad, what effect did that have on the family?
1: Mm -hmm. My mum was really close to her dad. He was a really treasured friend to her and she loved my brother Byron. They were very, very close So she lost the two people who mattered most to her in her whole life and so all the fun went out of her, you know, doing the best that she could but she was really broken and um, Dad was the same but Dad is the quiet one so he just became quieter and quieter and he was wonderful in taking me and my best friend off on sailing weekends. We did lots and lots of sailing. My best friend's dad built a boat for us so we could go off and do that. So I sailed and sailed and I was in guides and ranger guides and I did lots and lots of sport. But there was a hole at the heart of our family and it was a really sad place to be and no one was allowed to mention Byron's name. We didn't talk about what had happened. It was too upsetting to mum and we we were really damaged by it and a few years later my parents separated and my mum fell in love with someone else. My dad left home and, uh, yeah, finished year 12 in the house on my own. You took yourself
0: away from Tasmania. You, as still a teenager, set off on grand adventures in in other shores. First of all, to Asia. How much of a culture shock was Asia to a young girl from Hobart,
1: Heather? I I worked night and day to save up to go overseas. I I worked a government job during the day and I I was a cocktail waitress at night, four nights a week. And and suddenly, I'm in Asia, which had millions, hundreds of millions of people, and everyone living so close. The smells of Asia, the rain, the fecundity of everything, the poverty, the joy, all the religions in Bali living hand in hand, close close by, celebrating each other's holy days. It was magical, and awesome in the true sense of the word. You met a monk in Bangkok. What did he suggest you do? He could see how I was interested in pursuing Buddhism. So he he advised me to travel out to the border of Laos to a monastery out there that was set up by the head monk of Thailand in those days. His name was Ajahn Chah, where Westerners could go and study Buddhism. So... <laughs> So at seven o'clock one night, I boarded a train to the border of Laos on a 12-hour train trip with just a piece of paper to guide me. And Chai had written in beautiful Thai script two instructions that I had no way of reading. He said the first one was the station I had to get off at. I had to match it against the name on on the siding. And the second one was the name of the monastery. And if I handed that to anyone when I arrived, they would tell me how to get there. It was a 12-hour a overnight train trip with not another Westerner on the train and, of course, I had this bit of script so once the sun came up, I was trying to match it to every station <laughs> and finally there it was.
0: And what happened once you disembarked <clears throat> from this train?
1: Yeah, it was a tiny little train station and I, you know, shoulder my backpack and I walk out and there's a sandy circle with a plinth in the middle. And the circle is for where trucks and cars come racing in to drop off their passengers at the station. It's Asia, you know, everyone's racing. And there's a man, a policeman standing on the plinth, directing the traffic or doing his best to. So I crossed the road and handed this piece of paper to him and he jumped down and indicated that I should sit on the plinth. (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted to get up and keep conducting the traffic. (laughs) Anyway, about 10 minutes later, he turns up on a motorbike, instructs me to get on the back and I'm on the back of this motorbike with a policeman holding on (laughs) and he takes me to a bus station. They put me on a bus. No one will take my money. Everyone's very delighted that I've come and they drive me out along with the women who've just come from the early market with their vegetables and their chickens and everything and they drop me off at the end of this long, narrow road in the middle of rice paddies and all i can see ahead is that there's a forest a sort of there's trees some way away and i walk up this long sandy pathway wondering what on earth i've got myself into but it was the monastery and it changed my life
0: what did it look like once you made it past those trees what kind of what kind of setup was it well the beautiful thing
1: it was a square kilometer of forest so once you entered into that forest the light was dappled the floor of the forest was golden and light golden and light moving as the leaves moved in that tropical sun and then there were beautiful buildings beautiful timber sala where the the main meditation center was open sided a magnificent golden buddha with fresh flowers and there was a kitchen where the the villagers the people who lived nearby looked after the monks and nuns and novices and devotees so they came every morning to make food for us it was the rains retreat it's a special time in thailand where for for months the the monks who study away from their home villages go home to that village and to that monastery. And the rules are little eating, little sleeping and little talking. So we had one meal a day and we started our day at 3am when the first gong went. We were meditating by 3.30 and we finished our day about 11 o'clock at night. So it was walking meditation, sitting meditation, chanting. We had a little break in the afternoon for chores and a rest But other than that, it was living in silence in the most simple way and being in communion with the unseen and the seen. Were you happy? I was so content there. It was unlike any Western experience I'd ever had. There was something compelling about the devotion. I wasn't sure about Buddhism as such. I didn't know very much about Buddhism. But that program of little eating, little sleeping and little talking, that level of simplicity in a human life, to be able to get back to that for any period of time, I find nourishing. And I still love being in silence. But it also taught me that there's so much more inner life than our busyness. How hard was it to return to
0: the busyness of everyday life after that that time in the monastery?
1: Oh it was like returning from a foreign planet. It was as if I had come from somewhere very quiet and also very sensitive because once the mind is given so very little to occupy it everything becomes very precious. The light on a leaf, a raindrop falling onto sand, all the sounds become enhanced. The beauty of distant sounds from outside where you can hear people laughing in the village, the clatter of bowls in the kitchen when the the village people would be making breakfast, the sounds of mosquitoes and insects... Everything is somehow miraculous when life is so simple. And coming back out into the busyness of Bangkok, of all places, and then the travel that I then continued with, it felt complex and noisy, challenging and also exciting.
0: After a few more years travelling in Asia and then in Europe, Heather, what forced you back to Australia? Oh, I swung on a chandelier. Is that metaphoric? (laughs) (laughs) You literally swung on a chandelier. I
1: literally swung on a chandelier, yes, (laughs) and hurt my back. Uh, I had been having problems with my joints and muscles through my teenage years and I'd had episodes where I'd found it hard to walk, but on this occasion I was celebrating with friends And I decided I'd swing on a chandelier because what else is London there for? So I did and I landed slightly awkwardly and the next day I stopped being able to walk and it got worse and worse and I was in excruciating pain. I couldn't walk so I had to cut short my European sojourn. I'd intended to do at least another year or two over there and I had some great work over there but I couldn't do it so I flew back to Australia.
0: After you arrived back in Australia, you were living in Melbourne, what diagnosis were you given for what was going on with you physically?
1: Yeah, it was some months and I was still on walking sticks and a rheumatologist said to me, you have a condition called ankylosing spondylitis. It's very rare in women and you'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 30. And I remember looking at them and thinking that's not my life, I felt a little bit like I was being cursed and I wasn't going to have a bar of that. So I got up and I walked out of the office and I thought that's not going to be my life. And I set about doing everything I possibly could to find out about the condition and keep myself well and keep myself walking.
0: What have you learnt over the years since then about
1: what helps you keep well, helps you live with a a chronic condition like that? There's lots of things. I'm I'm sure for other people who have any form of chronic condition, there are many, many factors that can cause flare-ups. I looked at pretty much every kind of modern medicine and traditional medicine, every kind of practice, discipline, diet, regime, supplements, It's been a life's journey looking into that. I also have learned as time went on that it isn't uncommon for women and we don't end up in wheelchairs and luckily modern medicine has given us some fantastic support of late. But women have probably been undiagnosed or misdiagnosed with this condition for a long time. The thing I have really come to is, yes, I have to eat carefully. Yes, I have to exercise Yes, I benefit enormously from the love and care of my friends and family and I also benefit enormously from meditation and I have learned to practice forms of meditation that elevate my emotions because one of the hardest things about flare-ups and I've had many, many, many flare-ups over my lifetime, some of which stopped me walking for weeks and even months on end, I've had years of being on severe drug regimes and feeling very much like I was not the mother that I wanted to be. I've got three children and it was very hard to parent on many occasions on top of that pain and also knowing that I was some kind of role model for them uh, with a drawer full of heavy-duty drugs and and my flare could come at any time and they knew that. And they've always been enormously generous and kind and loving towards me with it. Once I was in my late 30s and early 40s, it became very, really severe for me to have these ankylosing flare-ups and it really limited my life choices. There were other jobs I would have done, there were other things I would have loved to have done in terms of outdoor activities, more sailing, more bushwalks, all of that, which became more difficult as I got older. So I started to look at this paradox that we have where we say that something or someone is invalid or we say they're an invalid. And I started to think about that and I realised that it's very easy to go down this rabbit hole of feeling invalid and feeling that my life was making no contribution, that I was an oxygen thief, that my children would be better off without me. And that's a terribly dark spiral to go down. And I thought, well, what's the what's the way I can pull myself out of this? And I knew meditation worked really well for me. So I started to practice meditations that elevated my emotions, that brought me up to joy, that brought me up to bliss, that brought me to happiness, that brought me to grace, that brought me to generosity, that brought me to gratitude. And that word gratitude was probably the most powerful word I found in that process because lying in bed, all I could see was clouds because we were up on a hill. And so I became really grateful for how clouds reconstitute themselves constantly into more and more beautiful evocations and every day the clouds are different in, in in Hobart the clouds are constantly evolving and reshaping and reforming and i began to feel really grateful for clouds and then i thought i'm actually grateful for light and i'm grateful for sunrise and i'm grateful for the breeze and I'm grateful for the trees and I'm grateful for this glass of water that I'm drinking. And I'm grateful for the person who invented the medication that is keeping me in some way comfortable. And I'm grateful for the girlfriend who just picked up my children from school and all of those things. And once I got really connected to how many things I was grateful for, it's very hard not to get joyful (laughs) and, and, joy, I discovered, was the antithesis of pain. If I could feel more joy and summon joy, that's what I became good at. I became really good at summoning joy. The pain couldn't grab hold of me. It became somehow unpeeled from my identity. And I was no longer someone suffering. I had pain. There's no doubt it was painful. I'll always probably have pain in my body but it doesn't belong to me. It's simply a visitor that lives beside me and I am a joyful, grateful person. On air,
0: online and on the ABC Listen app, this is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. you can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Heather, you were just describing how, as a young woman, you were diagnosed with AS, a a form of inflammatory arthritis. That's a chronic condition that can leave you in a lot of pain. Not long after you first got that diagnosis, you discovered that you were pregnant at at 23 and you weren't sure what to do, this big life change suddenly being thrown at you. Who turned up to reassure you?
1: (laughs) Well, this was a magical and mystical experience. I'm pregnant. I was about eight, ten weeks pregnant, completely unexpectedly because I'd had some things happen to me that had indicated I wouldn't be able to have children. And my partner at the time did not want a baby because of the financial burden of it. And I thought, wow, this might be the only baby I'll have. This is a miracle baby. I didn't know I could get pregnant. I was in my office at home and in those days it was a a Californian bungalow down in Brighton in Melbourne and it had slat windows in the old sunroom where I had my office and the jasmine was growing through the slats and it was a very ramshackle old house. And I was crying, I was crying. I did not know what to do. I, I did not want to have to let this baby go. And I heard, again, I heard something... And I turned around, oh, it gives me goosebumps to this day, I turned around and there was a man standing behind me and he was smiling at me and he had this dark hair and dark eyes, he was very handsome and he, he was obviously an apparition of some sort and he said, Mum, it's okay, this is my time. And I I looked at him and he said, it's it's all gonna be okay. This is my time. And he disappeared. And I knew that I couldn't possibly let this baby go. This this was my child grown up and it made no sense at all but he's 33 now and he's very (laughs) tall with dark hair and dark eyes and the same smile and it's him and is his time. These
0: visitations that you've had over your life, of, of your future son, of your brother, why do you think they happen to you and not everyone? How do you make sense of it?
1: Well, over the years I've asked a lot of people, Sarah. I've asked a lot of people. I've had endless conversations with Uber drivers, taxi drivers, people I've met on the road. I've travelled a great deal in all sorts of parts of the world, old grandmothers sitting on the side of the road chewing betel nut, uh, people on ski slopes I've had a glass of wine with. It's it's a human phenomenon, this having unusual experiences that we can't explain And often we pocket them, we put them away, we don't want to share them, we think they're too strange, people will think we're mad. But over and over again, people have shared their stories of loved ones who've visited them after they've died, uh, experiences with a sense that danger is coming or a sense that they're being visited and reassured about something over and over again, we're shown the right way. We're given reassurance. We're given signs that our life has other purpose and meaning beyond the everyday. It's very rare for me to ever ever met anyone who doesn't have a story.
0: Heather, what is a sweat lodge and how did you find
1: yourself in one on the outskirts of Melbourne? My little boy was about two years old and I was very tired by then. I was I had started freelancing after he was born as a copywriter. I'd been a copywriter in an advertising agency before he was born and I really wanted to be at home with him as much as possible. So I started freelancing and that got busy and I was worn out. And a friend of mine could see that and she suggested I come away for a sweat lodge weekend and I didn't know what that meant but she's a wonderful woman and very wise in all things so... I said yes, and we packed up, and it was a weekend camping for me, actually. That's what really thrilled me about it. I thought, oh, I really need to get out into nature. And it was not a very nice part of the world in a funny kind of way. It was a dry, sclerophyll forest and, you know, regrowth and tangled and weeds. Tasmanians
0: have got very high expectations
1: when it comes to camping. (laughs) We do. We do. (laughs) Absolutely. Once you've been in a Tasmanian rainforest, it's hard to compare. (laughs) So we set up camp and we built a sweat lodge. We cut down Willow out of the nearby very sort of choked up creek and put blankets over it and lit a fire and heated rocks and these rocks were carried in while we were inside this little lodge and and then water is put on the stones and it, the door is closed and it becomes very, very, very hot and steamy and, of course, pitch black. And you're in there with other people sweating. For and how long? I don't know, but it's hours, hours, yes. After that experience, you started having very vivid dreams.
0: What did the Native American man who who had led that sweat lodge tell
1: you was going on? Mm, I kept having a repetitive dream night after night. I was with Native American women and I was in a pine forest and there were quite a number of people and they seemed to all be preparing for something. They were beading and putting twine around feathers and singing songs and sitting by fires, chatting and laughing. And this particular old woman showed me how to bead and she showed me also how to make prayer ties the way that she wanted me to make them. And I was to make five of them every day for 81 days. And over and over again, she said this to me night after night and went on for about three weeks. And it's very disturbing to have a repetitive dream like that, to wake up day after day. I could smell the smoke from the fires. I could smell the pine needles. I could feel the softness of the pine needles under my feet. And I wasn't wearing my normal clothes. I was in a a special sort of dress. So I found the person who had led the sweat lodge weekend and I told him what was happening to me. And he said, you're being called to a Sundance. Did you have any idea what that meant? I had no idea at all. All I knew was that I, I would have to go to America and I would have to go through some rituals in order to be allowed into that particular ceremony. I think people
0: who maybe had had a similar experience to yours might have thought, well, that's interesting, well, that's curious, but, you know, look, I've got this child, I've got my partner, I've got my freelance advertising you know, whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go to America. But what did you do? I went to America.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what happened once you arrived? Well, I fell in with a crowd of people who were also called in this way and I spent $200 on an old 1974 Brown Volvo and I bought this car, I travelled south and I went out to Arizona and I did a sweat lodge. With a, There was a sweat lodge camp being organised for this specific reason that people needed to go through this ritual in order to qualify to be allowed into other rituals. There were about eight of us and a number of supporters and we went out to do a vision quest. Uh, That means going out solo into the wilderness uh, for four nights and four days. No food, no water and all I took with me was a blanket and prayer ties for that and prayer flags after that, you were directed to take your brown Volvo to Oregon,
0: where a Lakota medicine family was holding a Sundance. What did you see when you
1: arrived? Mm. Well, there were pine trees and fires and people beating and wrapping feathers and preparing for ceremony and people laughing, and it was exactly the same place that I'd seen in my dreams, and there were a couple of hundred of us and probably 70 of us started the dance together and, again, no food, no water. We danced from sunup to sundown, which is long at that time of the year because it's the middle of summer. We had sweat lodges morning and night, sometimes in the middle of the day too. We danced, we sang, we lifted our arms, we, we prayed to the great spirits and... Yeah, it changed my worldview for you forever. You this white woman
0: from Tasmania, Heather Rose, did it feel like you had a right to be there, to be
1: part of this Native American tradition? They welcomed me. I think the 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 ritual I'd gone through with the Vision Quest had been very compelling. I did that vision quest not just to make myself eligible to ask to be included in the Sundance. But to see if I was really the right person to be doing this and was this, was this really my calling? And it was a very reassuring yes for me during the vision quest, but I still had to go and seek permission. And that in itself was quite a, an onerous task to, to put myself at the feet of the Lakota Sundance chief and, and ask to be included in the dance. Here I was, as you say, a white woman from Tasmania. I'd come a long way. He knew I'd come a long way. He asked me why I wanted to dance. We had a bit of a chat. And he said, yes, yes, but you must live this life every day for four years. You must come back every year for four years and dance. These are the rules of the next four years. You can't drink you must be in service when you're called, you can't take any drugs and you have to live the life of a Sundancer every day, not just when you're here. And I knew that was a huge commitment and commitment isn't easy, but I knew I couldn't fail. So you
0: made this commitment to return every year for the next three years what was your life like when you weren't there? The majority of the year that you're not involved in this intense Lakota ceremony of, of sweat lodging and
1: dancing and staring at the sun and not eating or drinking, what what were you doing? I was working in advertising. I was the group head of fashion advertising <laughs> for Maya Grace Brothers. I, I had seasons of clothes to to prepare advertising for. I was writing television commercials, radio commercials, producing, you know, all sorts of content for advertising. And I drove a very beautiful 1965 white Mustang.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Heather, it's hard to imagine two more different existences. It was very
1: challenging. It was very, very challenging for me. I felt like two entirely different people.
0: Did you tell or were you open with your advertising colleagues or your fashion clients about This other side of your life?
1: Never spoke about it. Why not? Too strange. Too strange. Didn't expect them to understand. But every morning I started my day with the required rituals and every night I finished my day with the required rituals and I lived my life in a way that spoke to me of my commitment... What about your son, Heather? Did he come with you to these Native American sun dance ceremonies? He went to the States when he was three and when he was five for my second and fourth dances. We did enormous road trips across America. I've done over 20,000 road miles across America. And I loved the times I took him with me. It, it made it all so vivid and fun and joyful. We had so many adventures. When you look
0: back now at that experience in in your 20s, what do you think about that
1: young woman and that decision? It, It was only in writing the memoir and putting these things in place, calling up that self that was 26 and 27, 28, 29, made those commitments, did those dances that I really saw how brave I'd been. But I felt also a little bit sorry for her. I could see that she was still trying to heal. After the
0: four years you stopped going back annually, what kind of mark did that experience leave? What did you carry through with you into your life
1: after it? Well, nature has never felt separate from me since. I'm acutely aware of being of nature and the gift that that is, that I am a human in an ecosystem and there is really no separation between me and the ocean or me and birds or me and clouds. I know that the natural world speaks to us all the time. So I set about making sure my children really had a sense of that. We've done many, many camping trips. We have had annual camping trips all throughout their lives and the day is a series of rituals for me, really, I think. When I wake up, I'm grateful for the day. I I try never to miss a sunrise. I swim. I swim most every day, all year round. I like candles because they are a little fire in my house, even if the big fire isn't going. I'm grateful for the food I eat. I'm grateful for the water I drink. It's never left me the sense that we are the beneficiaries of this world and there's a lot that's unseen, but it's generous to us and I want to go on in my life being generous in return. You
0: returned to Tasmania and had two more children and alongside this high-flying advertising career, you began writing novels. Tell me about the trip to New York that led you to writing the Museum of Modern Love. I came
1: across Marina Abramovich in a photograph at the NGV in Victoria. There was a photo of a a performance called Rhythm Zero when she puts the 72 items on a table and, and these include a rose and a bottle of olive oil, a feather, some bread, but it also included chains, a knife, a gun and a bullet... She said to the audience, you can do whatever you like to me with these 72 items. But then at the bottom of the little descriptor about the photograph, it said Marina Abramovich is also known for a piece called The Walk when she and her partner Ulai walked from either end of the Great Wall of China to say goodbye to one another and end their relationship. And I looked at that and I thought, who does that? Who is so brave that they're willing to give an audience carte blanche with 72 items. But it's also so romantic that she would walk for months to meet in the middle to say goodbye to someone she loved. And I thought, oh, there's a character for a novel. Fast forward uh, five years later and I heard that she was doing a show in New York and I'd been writing the novel, I'd been researching the novel... It was very hard because there wasn't very much about her online in those days but I had found this treasure trove of books in the storehouse that housed the collection that was going to be put into the Mona Museum but it hadn't been built and opened yet. But the beautiful librarian there had made the books available to me and she was the one who said, Marina is having a show in New York next year. So I put myself on a plane... (laughs) Once again. (laughs) Once again, put myself on a plane. I had been to New York a couple of times before for work because by then I had an advertising agency of my own and we had partnered with a New York agency. So I flew into New York, didn't even drop my bags, just went straight to see this performance and then was mesmerised and went back every day for three weeks.
0: What happened in the performance? What happened
1: in that show? Marina Abramovich is sitting in a chair A blonde wood chair a bit like one from an Ikea uh, store. There's a table and another chair. There's a large square marked out on the floor in the MoMA central atrium. And Marina is holding eye contact with whoever comes and sits on the chair opposite. It was called The Artist is Present. And she sat with over 1,500 people over three months and did what became known as The Gaze, to be in The Gaze with Marina. It was profound. Why? What, what made it profound to sit opposite a stranger and,
0: and look into their eyes? Why were people queuing up all through New York to do this?
1: I think we yearn to be seen. We yearn for someone to look deeply into us and see what is there. In some ways, I think she was a mirror. I think that People looked into her and they saw something about themselves. But I must say that it was the first time I found a ceremony that seemed similar to Sundancing. When I sat down on the chair opposite her, I thought, oh, this is a ceremony. And she was so visibly to me in pain. It might not have been visible to other people, but I could see that she was in pain and she was mastering pain. In a most extraordinary way, sitting in that chair from you know 10 a.m. in the morning until 5 p.m. in the afternoon, being in the gaze with people, this act of stillness, silence, but also generosity. And I thought, Oh, this is like sun dancing. <laughs> and I had such a powerful sense that I could not fictionalize her anymore. I would have to ask her to be herself in the novel. So I felt a great sense of kinship with that sense of using, using pain to travel into places that free us from that pain because we're in the world of creativity.
0: Lime Bay, that place in Tasmania where your brother and, and grandfather lost their lives, have you
1: been back there? Yes. Yes, it took me a long time I went back only a few years ago, actually. I, I was staying near there with a couple of dear girlfriends and I'd never been back. And when I realised where they'd booked the accommodation, I thought, oh, maybe it's time. And I explained to them that there might be something I needed to do there. And they were so wonderful and said, Look, whatever you need to do. So we drove down, and I didn't know the exact place where they'd launched the boat. I didn't know the exact place where the boat had tipped over. But we found a place that felt just the sort of place that Nan and Grandad would have chosen to have a picnic and where they would have launched the boat. It was beautiful she oaks and sandstone ledges, and there's Lime Bay as exquisite as possible. It was November, but the water is still very cold there at that time of the year. But I felt the need to go in the water. So I stripped off and I went in and I laid on my back and I I floated and I duck-dived and I I felt as if I was looking for them. I was looking for them. I was wanting to get any sense that there was a message here for me. And in the end, I I just laid in the water and let myself surrender in a meditative state uh, to the sea and to the sky. I closed my eyes and I laid there for quite a long time. It didn't feel cold. It was really strange. It was as if there was an envelope of warm around me protecting me. And my girlfriends watched the breeze come in and ruffle the water and with it came this series of rainbows because of the light. So what they were seeing was me floating in the water surrounded by these rainbows, which they found terribly moving. I came back into shore and had a hot drink and felt that I wanted to go and write about it. And I sat on the rocks looking out over the bay and I had such a powerful sense nothing bad had happened here, that despite everything that had come to my family from this terrible accident, my nan, my mum, my dad, my brother, my sister, it didn't make any sense in a in a rational way. It didn't make any sense when I thought of all the reasons not to believe this, but it felt as if. My limited human understanding aside, that nothing bad had happened here, that this had just happened. It wasn't right or wrong, it wasn't good or bad, it was just what happened.
0: How do you understand grief at this point in your
1: life? Mm, It never goes away. I think grief lodges in the body. I think it lodges deep in the body and here I am nearly 60 and I still got upset talking about it and it's not that I haven't done enormous amounts of therapy and all sorts of things to try and free myself from that experience. I don't think it will ever not be sad. I don't think it will ever not be sad to all the members of my family. But at the same time, that grief... Has given me enormous empathy for all the grief so many people feel, and people have lived far worse lives than I have, have endured far more painful experiences with their bodies and their minds than I have. It's it's a, a conduit grief, I think. It's a conduit into empathy and kindness and gratitude. It's a way of stepping out of ourselves and seeing the world for all that it is, as well as all that it isn't. And most of all, I think it's a beautiful opportunity to connect with each other and say, here we are on this planet. There's plenty of reasons to be doubtful or sad or angry or outraged, but there's also this life and what a magical thing it is.
0: And when the time comes, how do you hope to be able to meet your own death?
1: By saying thank you.
0: Thank you, Heather, for for being our guest on Conversations.
1: Thank you, Sarah.
0: Heather Rose's memoir is Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.